Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren, I'm your host, and today I've got a great guest, Mr. Chris Young. He is the CEO of Combustion Inc., former CEO of Chef Steps, and the co-author of Modernist Cuisine. I'll be right back with Chris Young. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Hey all, I want to introduce you to a company I just started working with, Fresh Jack's Organic Spices out of Jacksonville, Florida. They're a small, family-run company that's fast-growing. I've tried a bunch of their different seasoning blends and spices, and I can tell you they are all fresh, all organic. None of them contain artificial flavors or sweeteners. None of them have anti-caking agents or preservatives. They all taste like they were just made for you yesterday. Check them out, guys. They're on Amazon in the link below. They have different sample packs, different blends. Like I said, they also have the individual seasonings and spices as well. Fresh Jack's Organic Spices. Check them out, guys. I love them. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren. I am your host. And today I've got a really special guest. I've been wanting to get him on for a long time. I have Chef Chris Young. He is the CEO of Combustion Inc., former CEO of Chef Steps. Chris, welcome. Uh, tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, Darren, it's great to be here. Um, uh, you've already introduced me. I'm Chris. And uh, I guess the very quick uh, summary of my background is I am somebody who studied science, bailed on a PhD, became a cook, uh, became the founding uh, the founding head chef of uh, the Fat Duck Experimental Kitchen, uh, Ran that for five years before co-authoring Modernist Cuisine with Nathan Mirbold. And after Modernist Cuisine was launched into the world, I founded Chef Steps uh, with uh, Grant Crilly and Ryan Matthew Smith uh, and Ed Starbird. Uh, ran Chef Steps, created Jewel, and this was supposed to be my year of taking a break. But instead, I decided to start another company called Combustion Inc. So I am, I suppose, both a chef and a culinary inventor. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks for joining the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Chris just summed it up. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, a pretty good summation of, of who you are and what you've done. But now I want to go into some details because mm-hmm. I think you've been more behind the scenes in a lot of stuff than, than, than you're not somebody who's out there. And a lot of that, I recognize that with Chef Steps, you know, uh, Grant was always the the one on the videos and stuff. And so everybody kind of, you know, thinks of Chef Steps, you think of Grant. But you kind of were the one behind it. And I want to get back into how you got started. You, you kind of said, and I read up on your bio and stuff that, you know, you didn't go to school. You didn't go to culinary school. You went to school for mathematics and um, biochemistry. biochemistry. <laughs> and, you know, like some of the other people I've talked to, like Kenji, that, you know, started out on a totally different career path. Was it you went to work in a restaurant and, got, and fell in love with cooking, or how 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 did it work? Because I know that's what happened with him. He went to work in a restaurant like as a part time job and just fell in love with it. Uh, I, I wish it was. Uh, I wish it was quite that romantic. No, in fact, it was um, uh, weirdly much more traumatic. I had a super bad breakup with a uh, with a girlfriend, and uh, I think was incredibly depressed, burned out on school. Um, kind of decided I needed to radically change a bunch of things. And so I did, I kind of decided after almost nine years of higher education that I just needed to do something different. 
the first dot com era had kind of completely imploded, and so my my uh, a lot of my technical skills were not high, highly employable in the Seattle area. So I I'd always like cooking. I figured I'd get a job in a restaurant, make a little money. Worst case, I'd become a slightly better cook. And it was far more accidental. Um, I ended up talking my way into uh, a restaurant called Mistral, which uh, was was uh, opened by a chef named William Balekis, who had come out of David Boulay's kitchen. And, uh, you know, I kind of fell in love with it. it. It was the thing I needed in my life at that time. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, it's just worked for me. I've, I've had a lot of luck of, of ending up at the right places with the right people at the right time. And the culinary industry has been just uh, an absolute delight for the last 20 years. So how did you start out, you know, working in a kitchen in Seattle and finding your way into develop or or actually being the the guy who helped develop the fat duck experimental kitchen in in London? (laughs) It it seems like that's a kind of a a weird path. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a leap, right? So the, the, the actual story there is I've been cooking professionally for about a year um, and my future mother-in-law, my, my, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife's mother gave me an anthology of food writing and it had an article in it, um, called the gastronauts by Harold McGee. And I was a huge Harold fan. In fact, his book I'd been reading while I was in grad school and it, it, it played a pretty big influence on, yeah, I really should, I should get into cooking. And it, Harold's article back in 2002 wrote about this crazy chef in London that nobody had heard of with a funny name, Heston Blumenthal, that was trying to apply science in his kitchen to do interesting things. And it sounded amazing. So I, in, in, in February of 20, uh, 2003, not 20, 2003, I flew myself over to London. I sort of obliterated my credit cards. I had, I had sent a fax. <laughs> Uh, this is how old this was. I'd sent a fax to the fat ducks that I would love to uh, dine in the restaurant. And can I stage for a weekend? And they said, sure. So I flew myself over on Valentine's weekend alone to London um, in 2003. I had a dinner by myself on Friday night and it blew my mind. It was so off the map um, of, of what food could be. It was so different. You know, nobody was doing anything like this in Seattle. Nobody was doing anything like this anywhere. And I came back to, to, to work for the, the next day. I staged for the weekend. Um, and at the end of the weekend, I simply said, like, I, I will do anything to work here. Um, you know, can, can, I, can I get a longer stage? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to work for, 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 for free, essentially. And they said, sure. Because what people don't appreciate is, one, I thought it was a one Michelin star restaurant when I got there. They'd just gotten their second, but they had no customers. It was teetering on the brink of, of, of insolvency. So the idea of you know a chef who's willing to come over and be free labor, free labor. sure. It's, <laughs> it, it's not like they had a line out the door back then, and everyone kind of thought they were weird. They, you know, they'd certainly built up a reputation. Everybody who, you know, Gordon Ramsay, Marco Pierwhite, all these, 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 these chefs in, in London would come out on the weekends and have Sunday, Sunday lunch there, you know, Heston had built up quite a reputation, but it wasn't financially viable. And they said, sure. So I went back to my hotel in, in London that night. I called my girlfriend and said, guess what? I've just accepted a job in London. I got to come home, pack my bags and be back here in a week. Uh, I actually did end up marrying that, that, that girl. But at the time she said, I can't talk about this click hung up. Um, 
<laughs> I, I came back. I staged for the next three months uh, in the spring of 2003, pretty much getting my ass handed to me every day. I was so out. Of, I mean, you know, the restaurant in the kitchen was at a very elite level even then. I've been cooking professionally for about a year. So, so you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's, um, you know, you remember the the, the Harlem Globetrotters. There's always the there's there, there's always the team that loses to them, right? I'm on <laughs> right. that team, but somehow I've snuck into a Harlem Globetrotter uniform. And but you know, I started to figure it out. I showed up earlier. I stayed later just to get ahead of my work. And I and I and I think generally people people respected me for you know working harder to try to figure it out. But I also had this science thing. And so Heston would be like, "Oh, you know, can you figure this out?" And I was always kind of the the person that could understand what Heston was asking. And on like the lunch break, I would, I would go into one of our sheds in the back garden and sort of figure it out. And so at the end of three months, um, you know, I sat down with Heston and uh, I, I'd asked that to, to have some time with him before service one day. And we sat down and, and I said, you know, you know, a lot of it was just trying to give advice. Where should I go from here? And Heston goes, you know, I've always wanted to have a kitchen uh, just dedicated to working on the menu develop, just working on new techniques and ideas. And with your science background, would you be willing to move to London and get that started? And, you know, uh, this is kind of the dream offer, right? Like I was smart enough to say, uh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, for the next six months, we had to apply for a work permit for me. I had to, to live back in Seattle and I do all the experiments in my apartment kitchen in Seattle and call Heston every Sunday with an update. And I'd fly over at least once a month and do service and, and, and show everyone what I've been working on, you know, which was a completely crazy thing for Heston to fund and back at the time because the restaurant absolutely could not afford it. Um, and in the meantime, they had to advertise for somebody with a Michelin star cooking experience who also had advanced degrees and, and, you know, hard sciences so that the UK government would give me a work permit. And, and we got that. So I moved to England full-time uh, as uh, to found the, what became the Fat Duck Experimental Kitchen in June of um, 2004. And, you know, between 2004 and 2008, uh, you know, the, the, the Fat Duck took off. I mean, we nearly didn't. We were literally about one day away from bankruptcy the day we got our third star. And, you know, that saved the restaurant. And a few months later, we were voted best restaurant in the world. And, and at that point, it was kind of hang on, hang on to the rocket ship. And, you know, it was incredible working with this amazingly talented culinary team with uh, with brilliant chefs, Heston, but Ashley Palmer Watt, uh, Jockey Petrie and Pastry, later Kyle Connaughton, who's now at Single Thread, who took over from me when I left the Fat Duck. Um, you know, this was, you know, and of course, you had chefs like Wiley Dufresne and Albert Adria and Farn Adria. The, the culinary world was super innovative in those years, and I got to be sort of in the middle of it uh, at, at the Fat Duck. It was kind of an irreplaceable experience that opened a lot of doors for me. So, uh, well, I'm pretty sure I couldn't go back and, and relive that that and, and redo that kind of. Uh, it was not an easy job. I don't think I could survive it again. Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was absolutely the best thing uh, I could have imagined doing with most of my twenties. Well, one of the things I I get I take out of that from what you're telling me and from just looking at your history, if you didn't have that biochemistry background and your mathematical background, your sciences based background, you probably wouldn't have gone through any or, you know, flown over uh, there and, uh, and met Heston and, and, no, and done I, any of that. No, it's all, you know, I, it's all, there, there's of course a ton of luck. And at the time, you know, it was super ambiguous and am I making the right decisions? And everyone thought 
everyone who knew me from academia thought I was crazy. Um, my parents, thankfully, were very supportive and they were like, you know, go for it. But uh, but most of my friends thought I was bonkers. And I kind of dropped off the social map for the next better part of a decade because, you know, uh, working in a professional kitchen doesn't give you a lot of free Friday and Saturday nights to hang out with your 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 your, your normal friends. Um, but it was a lot of luck. And, you know, the interesting thing is if I didn't have the background, it wouldn't have happened because I was a nothing special line cook. Like I worked hard. I, I wasn't in, you know, I was competent, but there were, there were many, many people who are better at knife skills, are faster, are more talented at the execution. My sort of superpower of cooking was the ability to understand the science of cooking and figure out how to apply it in a practical way in the kitchen to do things that other people haven't done. And, and, and that's kind of, I was lucky to fall into a career and sort of invent one on the fly, I suppose, that lets me do exactly that. Yeah, if you didn't have that background, you probably would have been, uh, you know, the salad guy for a longer, longer period of time. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I worked in restaurants when I was younger, so I kind of know that, you know, you start out in the prepping of the food and, you know, it takes you a while to get over on the line and finishing the plates is, you know, kind of the, you know, it, it, there's a big uh, hierarchy there's that you have a, there, to go there, through. There is a hierarchy there. <laughs> You know, and, and and I'll be honest, even on my best days, I'm not necessarily the, the, the guy you want right next to you on the line. <laughs> That's fine. Great. Uh, so, so you moved into the restaurant business. You, you, you took this big uh, leap of faith and you moved to London and worked for Heston Blumenthal, who now is one of the most famous uh, chefs out there and, and does a lot of the modernist type, uh, you know, uh, cooking. Mm-hmm. How how did you get back to Seattle, and and how did you uh, how did this come about with uh, Nathan Mervald and getting into the modernist cuisine? Yeah, so it was uh, you know again a bit of luck. Now Nathan had been a guest of the Fat Duck, and um, you know after his dinner there, he wanted to come and tour the Fat Duck Experimental Kitchen. So I was there, and you know Nathan at the time I think was pushing some theory of how jacquarding worked on e-gullet. And he came into the lab and introduced <laughs> and introduced himself, uh, you know, oh, I'm Nathan Mirabold, you know, and, and uh, you know, I said, hello. And I said, I know who you are. And you're completely fucking wrong about that stuff you're saying on e-gullet. And Nathan thought that was hysterical. Like that. I just was like, no, you're just wrong about this. It doesn't work that way at all. It's this, this, and this. And you know, we weirdly kind of stuck up, struck up a bit of a, a of an initial friendship over that. Uh, we both had a Seattle connection. I I lived in Seattle before the Fat Duck. I went to university here, and you know, so we stayed in contact via email. We had a shared interest in barbecue, something that was always sort of my backup plan. If the whole professional chefing thing doesn't work out, uh, I'm I'm going to go on the barbecue the barbecue circuit. Um, and uh, so we, we would exchange emails and just kind of generally kept in touch. And when I would be back in Seattle, I, I went over to his house and checked out his, his completely awesome kitchen and dinosaurs. And, and uh, you know, so it was just this, this friendly thing by somebody who shares a like-minded interest. And my son was born in London. Now my wife is American and I'm American. And, and, and it was just time for a change. Five years in a restaurant like the Fat Duck uh, is is a is a couple of tours of duty, um, and anybody who's worked in a restaurant like that knows exactly what I mean. So, I, uh, you know, I resigned my position at the Fat Duck. I was going to move back to the states to be closer to family. Um, you know, I'd been talking to chefs like David Kinch and Wiley Dufresne about maybe coming to doing something with them, but I didn't really have a plan. 
And, you know, as usually happens when you move jobs, you've got to send a bunch of emails out that like, hey, my email address is going to change. I won't have my fat duck email address anymore. So I sent Nathan just a courtesy email saying, you know, hey, I'm uh, moving on from the fat duck. If you want to stay in touch, here's my email going forward. And about three minutes later, I got a response from him. And the subject line just said, crazy idea. And he said, hey, I don't know what you're what you're planning on doing, but, you know, why don't you come work with me? We, we could write a book together. And uh, turned out Nathan was down in the Mediterranean on his boat. So he invited me down to spend the weekend with him on his boat and we'd go to El Bui together. And he'd already started thinking about Monarch's Cuisine. He'd already done some outline and, and it, it was at the, hey, this might be a real thing kind of stage. Um, like we should do this. And it was going to be a book mostly about sous vide, but you know, he had the beginnings of an outline. And over that weekend, we flushed out, you know, I still have the handwritten pages, what became the outline for modernist cuisine. And, you know, this was kind of a, a hardship interview, right? Like I'm on this mega yacht, we're going to El Bui together, we're, <laughs> we're drafting the book. It's like, let me let me twist my arm for you. Um, and, and so that was kind of like, well, why wouldn't we do this? This could kind of be our contribution back to the culinary world where, you know, right now, if you want to know how chefs are doing some of these techniques, you kind of have to go work at these restaurants and try to piece together what you can as a stagiaire. We could do a lot of, of good for the culinary world by putting this all into a book together. And, you know, I still have another email from Nathan once I started in November of 2008, um, uh, or sorry, November of 2007, you know, I have an email uh, saying, you know, Chris, this probably isn't even going to be a full-time gig. You know, this is going to be a few hundred pages, mostly about sous vide. We ought to be able to get it done in a few weekends. You know, you have <laughs> lots of other time to, to work on other projects. I don't know, you know, and uh, obviously that turned out to be completely not true. You know, five years later at the high watermark, we had 39 people working on this book. And, and I like to say it's what happens when you have no adult supervision to tell you you've run out of time or money. <laughs> you know, even as late as about nine months before the book shipped, uh, we still thought it was only like three volumes. Um, you know, and then I turned in the meat chapter that became, you know, more than two thirds of, of volume three. And, you know, we just kind of kept adding things because there was just so much cool stuff where we could kind of give people uh, an explanation of the hows and whys of cooking in this really visually compelling way that nobody had done. And so, you know, the first four years of that project were awesome. The last year of that project was as hard as just about anything I've ever tried to do <laughs> because it's time to ship and everybody's angry at everybody and we're behind and the budget spiraling in, you know, whatever budget there was, it's spiraling out of control. It's officially getting expensive even for Nathan. And so it's like every other day, it's, we got to ship, we got to ship, we got to ship, but we got it done. And, you know, you never know. I remember like we talked to a bunch of publishers, we ultimately self-published, but we talked to a bunch of publishers and at first nobody had interest. And then when we showed them the galley proofs that we produced, they're like, Oh, that's what you were talking about. We totally want to publish that. <laughs> and we're like, well, how, how many copies do you, do you think people would buy? And they're like, Oh, well, we think we might be able to sell 3,000 copies around the world. And, you know, Nathan's thinking about how much he's spent on this going, well, we need a little more optimism. <laughs> but you, we, we, we honestly, you know, we didn't know what the reception was going to be. You don't ever know. It could have completely fallen flat. It could have been, uh, you know, there was certainly feedback from some chefs I know of, like, who are you guys to write a book like this? It should be a chef writing a book like this. You guys, you guys shouldn't be writing a book like this. And, and these were some pretty well-known famous chefs who I won't name because they'd probably be embarrassed by it now. But, you know, you had some people who were really upset. And we were pleasantly surprised that, you know, I think in year one, almost 50,000 copies. 
Nice. You know, so so it's inc- it was incredibly successful. Um, you know, it just showed that there was a real appetite for this kind of knowledge out there, and uh, so it was a blast to be part of. But it started out as a as a rabbit hole, I guess. You know, you thought it was going to be you know one book with you know maybe a couple hundred pages, and it turned into how many books and how many pages? <laughs> what is it? It's like twenty five hundred pages, five volumes plus a kitchen manual. You know, and there's stuff that got cut, believe it or not. Like there's stuff that didn't make it. Yeah. Um, I'm, hard to believe. I'm sure. I'm sure once you got started and, and you, like you said, once you start going down that rabbit hole and then you go, well, what about this? Oh, well, what about this? We need to add this. We, you know. <laughs> well, so this is a really interesting thing. Like every project I've been involved in, whether it was the fat duck or whether it was modernist cuisine or whether it was chef steps and whether it's combustion, you know, now. You know, so many people assume like, oh, you should sit down and you should write a plan and you got to figure this all out and then execute, execute, execute. That's like this very corporate way of thinking and nothing super interesting gets done that way. Right. You can, you can, you can write the plan. You can fantasize and lie to yourself of how it's going to work. And maybe there are some projects that can work that way, but all of the really interesting ones, all of the ones that really do something different, there is no way a priority to write the plan. You're betting on a team, you're betting on yourself and you have to be willing to go down these blind alleys, to fail, to have all this uncertainty, and then just have the perseverance to eventually pull it back and, and ship it. And it is scary as all get out because like, you know, it right up to the end can feel like you're going to completely fall on your face. That was true with Chef Steps. That was true with Jewel. The fat duck, um, you know, when we were in Spain on a, the Thursday, we found out we got our third Michelin star. We had zero customers in the book. We couldn't make payroll on Friday. And then the news leaked out and Heston was on the, on the headlines the next day. And we started booking up. We actually, the immediate next day, we went from zero customers to fully booked. And we have never not been fully booked since, as far as I know, you know, that's about it. You know, modernists felt that way at times. Uh, I know we nearly imploded with jewel a couple of times over, over stuff that just nearly killed us. Um, and I, it takes a certain type of person who wants to be part of it, but you know, that rabbit hole, is I think how all good projects start. Yeah, that's where your creativity and, and your experimentation and on all that, that's where the great things come from. They don't come from a corporate manual, that's for sure. Of no. what, you know, a step A, step B, step C, you know, it doesn't work that way. In, in, and you, you have that. To, you had- to artists, so it's the same way with an artist. They don't just say how to paint a picture. They can't write a book on how to paint a picture, right? Well, look. <laughs> At the Fat Duck, you had you had reviewers who didn't know how to think about the Fat Duck or review it. You had you had some reviewers who got it, like Matthew Ford at the Guardian, just understood. But you had others who were just like, I don't get it. Like, why? And and they were totally confused. Um, and and that was really hard for the restaurant. At Modernist Cuisine, like early on when we tried to explain this book to to, to find a publisher to partner with, because like Publishing a book and distribution, that, that's a bunch of stuff to do. Very different from creating the book. So we thought maybe we need a publisher to help with us. And, and these guys, these folks are in the business. But as soon as you come to them with a proposal that that isn't this successful idea combined with this successful idea equals more success for you. If you come with something that's truly off their map, they just can't wrap their head around it, even the really visionary ones. And Chef Steps was kind of the same way. You had almost the entire time, people going, I don't get it. I don't get it. You had people going, I don't get Jewel. Um, and, you know, largely speaking, uh, you know, those projects all were successful. Um, and 
the problem is all of the incumbents, the traditional corporations that, that talk to chef steps, the traditional publishers that talk to modernists, or the traditional reviewers that were trying to review the fat duck, they all failed to understand how the world was changing. And yet they sort of became the, you know, when they tell you you're, you're crazy, it's hard not to take that feedback on and internalize it and be like, maybe I am about to <laughs> dig a giant hole in the ground. Yeah. Well, that's like you're saying, they all were looking at the past and what worked before or what they're used to. They weren't looking into the future and what can be great. They were, you know, well, this, you know, we did a Martha Stewart book or whatever, you know, whatever you want to say, you know, and that was successful. Can you do something like, you know, what what Emerald did or can you do something because, you know, we know that works. They weren't looking at, well, maybe we should try this because it's something totally new and something totally different that people might go, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, look, those kinds of projects can be successful. I know plenty of people who uh, can work within those, those constraints. I am not one of them. Um, I am not interested in, in doing the, the next iteration, but, uh, and, and, you know, so I, I actually almost struggle to deal with people who want to fit you into their, into their sort of backwards looking model. Right. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I, I try to do my own thing as well. So let's talk a little bit about sous vide. Cause I deal with my brand and stuff. I, I, yep. I mix barbecue and sous vide. And I, when I first was exposed to sous vide, it was, you know, only about, you know, three or four years ago. And I, what I opened up and you kind of hit on that you love barbecue. I, I looked at it like it's the ultimate low and slow, you know, compared to barbecue. That's what kind of, right. I, I said, you know, I love barbecue and I've been doing barbecue for a while, but this is like blows barbecue away because it's lower and slower. And it does some things I can do that I, I can't do on the, on the smoker or, or a grill. But mm-hmm. if I combine the two, I can make something totally different that I can't make with either one of them. So how did you get involved in sous vide? Was it at, at Heston's or was it with the restaurant you worked at in Seattle before you went to uh, the Fat Duck or was it Modernist? It was It was the Fat Duck um, is the first place that I was exposed to sous vide. Um, and, you know, I'd certainly used laboratory baths as, in, in the chemistry department. Like they were not an unfamiliar technology to me. And you know, actually in the very earliest days of Fat Duck, a big part of my job was getting all this laboratory equipment that Heston was buying on eBay to work. Like he'd <laughs> see something he's like, I don't know what it does, but it looks cool. So we're going to buy it. Um, so rotary evaporators, laboratory baths. And, you know, part of the challenge was it required a lot of experiment experimentation because back in 2002, 2003, you know, every, you know, there was only a handful of restaurants that were really using sous vide. And, Nobody really, well, the way I think about it is suddenly you'd given really creative chefs the most accurate thermostat that they'd ever had in the kitchen. Like it was, it was a hundred times more accurate than anything they'd ever had. And so the idea of, well, you could cook something for 72 hours with it being perfect at, at, a, at a constant temperature, like that hadn't really been possible before. And so there was a lot of experimentation of like, well, how do I create the perfect pork belly? Is it 48 hours at 60 Celsius? What about 62 Celsius? How does, how does time and temperature relate? And, you know, I remember 2004 or five, you had different chefs all doing the sous vide egg, right? Wiley liked the 64 degree egg and other people like the 63 degree egg. And, and you realize we're arguing over like a degree difference <laughs> and it's actually kind of absurd. Right. And, and if you think about it, like we have these words in of, how do you want your steak done? I want rare, medium, rare, medium. And, and those are inherently imprecise words. And they actually vary a lot geographically. What, what somebody in Cleveland thinks of as medium rare is much more rare than what somebody in San Francisco thinks of as medium rare. But 
we didn't, there was no point of being more precise for most of our culinary history because chefs didn't have a way of delivering it. If you, if you went into a steakhouse that isn't doing sous vide and said, I would like my steak cooked to 129 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> you know, you're going to look like an ass, um, but they also probably can't do it. You know, that's right. beyond, you know, that's, you know, not consistently. And so sous vide unlocked that pot- potential in 2002. And, and, you know, I did a lot of the experimenting of, of trials upon trials upon trials to find our, our, the combinations we preferred most for different things. And of course, where one of the areas that sous vide really shines is low and slow, which being somebody who's always loved barbecue, you know, uh, there's nothing as low and slow as sous vide. And so it's a, it's sort of this, you, you can't not look at that and say, well, if an 18 hour is pretty good for a brisket, what would, <laughs> what would 72 hours be like? And, you know, it, it isn't far where you start to realize sous vide really lets you divide and conquer where I can combine the, the low temperature, long time component that, that turns a sow's ear into a silk purse. I can let sous vide do that, but then I can combine it with traditional hot smoking to get the best of both worlds. And once you start doing that, you experiment like, well, should I smoke first and then sous vide or should I sous vide and then smoke or should I do both? And there's differences, right? And that's where the art starts to come back in of what do you prefer? How do you talk about those differences? Um, you know, and so I think for most of the early 2000s, you know, that was a lot of the stuff I was doing. And and, and Nathan was doing experiments and talking about them on eGullet and, and other people were. And, and that was kind of the genesis for what became modernist cuisine was this stuff scattered everywhere. It's so much knowledge that's in people's heads. What if we put it all into one book and make it more accessible? Can we help advance sous vide? And I think we did. And then, of course, you had uh, Sancerre, you had Polyscience, and then you had Sancerre, and then you had Anova, and then you had us all kind of make sous vide more accessible. Because back in 2002, you know, I was paying a thousand pounds for a used laboratory bag. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that, um, I think that's when it really started to explode into the home cooks, you know, when you had you guys, you know, Jewel, Nova, uh, Sancerre started making these where they're affordable, you know, now yeah. you can get them for, you know, 50 bucks and, you know, they're yeah. not the best quality, but I mean, you can get a decent <laughs> Those ones are crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can get a decent one for 150, 200 bucks, you know, Jewel's yeah. now at 200 bucks. So, I mean, they kind of, itch the price up over the years, but you know, to get a really good one, you're, you're under 200 bucks. You can get a really good CD oh, yeah. circulator and, you know, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth and all the, you know, help with the apps and stuff that you can, you can have. Um, back then, you know, you didn't have any of that, but I, I, I'm with you on that because, you know, I started out, you know, just with a Facebook group talking about mixing barbecue and sous vide and you get into the point of, yes, I can combine the two and then you get into personal preference. Well, do I want to smoke it first or after it can, it can be done either way, but it's going to come down to personal preference. What you really like, do you want a better yep. bark? It's better if you do the smoke after, do you want to, you know, more smoke penetrating deeper into the meat, maybe smoke it before, you know, and then sear it after. I mean, there's little things that you can tweak and do, and, and it's going to come down to personal preference. And that's the, the fun part to me is, is doing that experimenting with trying the different things and you get the basic down of, I can combine these two and I can do it either way, but now let's tweak it here and there and make it to where the way I like it. 
Absolutely. And, you know, that's really the craft of barbecue. And you don't ever want to take that away from people. Like there, there's, there's no value of saying, no, oh, we've, we've commoditized it. Just throw everything in the bag and it'll be perfect. It's like there, the, the point for me is if I come, if I make a, if I make some barbecue that I think is great, I'd like to know how I did it. Like, what did I really do so that I can do it again? And for me, that's always been the value of being able to measure things by having technologies that make certain things easier. But, you know, I wouldn't want it to de-skilled where it's boiling a bag, right? Like that's not interesting to me. But if I have a sous vide device that can get me the tenderness and then, you know, my, one of my favorite barbecues is my Karuba If I can use my Karuba because I've modded mine out, I put a pin controller on it. I've kind of <laughs> gone nuts. Mine is a very, mine is a very hacked Karuba Um, You know, n- no, uh, no slight to Bill Carew. It's a great product, but you know, I find that I can get the barbecue that I think is as good as I know how to make it by combining those technologies. And even with my barbecue, you know, you're not really measuring the real smoker temperature, which is why I started the surface temperature cooking and made thermometers so that I can know, well, what's actually happening at the surface of my food? Because if I'm doing a full load of barbecue, the humidity is much higher, things cook different. If I'm just doing a few racks of ribs, you know, the surface temperature will be different under all of those cases. And I like measuring it so that I can be confident that I'm going to deliver, if I'm going to put the time in, if I'm going to, you know, burn through a mountain of wood and baby it all day, I want it to be awesome. And I find that measuring that in some very simple ways gives me control over my creativity and my craft. You, um, like several other people I've talked to, and, and I guess people like us, we want to know what's going on when we cook. We don't just... Ooh. I don't want to just somebody tell me, okay, well, here's what you got to do, you know, put mustard on it, you know, and put your rub on and then wrap it. And when it hits 160, you want to know why things are happening and how you can, you know, adjust it and, and make it different and make it your own. Um, there's a lot of, and I'm sure it's not just barbecue. I mean, it's in all across the whole, you know, cooking in general, the traditionalist or the people who just do it just because my grandma made it this way. And then there's people like us that go, I want to know why meatheads the same way. Meathead golden mm-hmm. amazing ribs, but yeah, it's uh, people like us and you know, want to understand why. And then we want to teach people, you know, this is why you need to know this because don't just take a recipe and just follow it, be able to create your own recipe and make it, you know, the way you like it, be able to look at a recipe and go, that looks good. And it probably will turn out great, but I'd like to add a little bit more here, you know, tweak it here and there, you know, you can't do that if you don't understand how, how your whole cooking process works. Yeah. I, you know, I've always found a lot of my, my creativity in, in cooking comes from really understanding the hows and whys it, it's, it's an ability because it, it allows me to, if I have a, a, a goal in mind, if there's something I'm trying to do, if I don't have some mental model of how is this working? What, what affects what I'm just kind of shooting into the dark is I try to like get to my destination and that doesn't work. So things like measuring, things like understanding the role humidity plays or what's what's the real cooking temperature and how does it change as the food cooks, you know, those are things that allow me to be more creative. They allow me to take bigger creative leaps because I'm quite confident that it's going to work out. And so I don't have to take these small incremental things of just tweak a spice, adjust this. It's like, no, I know this is what's going on. So I'm going to take this big step here and it it can be transformative. Yeah, definitely. Hey, all it's Darren. And I want to take a second to talk to you about the high powered torches. 
from Grill Blazer, the Grill Gun, and Sous Vide Gun. I was lucky enough to be a part of this project long before it was a Kickstarter, and I love them. If you're looking for something to sear your food within seconds, check out the Sous Vide Gun. If you're looking for a torch to light your grill and have it up and cooking within five minutes, your lump or briquettes, check out the Grill Gun. You can also light outdoor fire pits and your fireplace within minutes. Check it out, guys, at the link below and get 10% off your order. Check out the Grill Gun and the Sous Vide Gun by Grill Blazer. So we talked about modern cuisine and how that was like having a baby. <laughs> what, seven years you said it took or five years? Well, or? modern cuisine was five years and, uh, and then Chef Steps was just about eight years. Yeah. So I want to move into Chef Steps. So when you're done with modernist cuisine, you got that out there. It was successful. Then you said, okay, what's next? And then what made you think of Chef Steps and how did you picture Chef Steps? Because I know you didn't, you weren't off the bat going, I want to make a jewel like Scott Hunt. No, no. Did you, no, did you work even, with Scott, by the way, at the uh, Modernist? Uh, was very, he there? We, we, we briefly overlapped. So I do know Scott. Scott's a good yeah. friend. He's great. He's a great guy. I, I feel a little, I feel a little bad that, you know, Sansair didn't, didn't ultimately make it. Um, but you know, that that's business. Um, but, uh, yeah, Scott and I overlapped a bit and there was no vision that Chef Steps would become that. Uh, I think the logic at the time, and this is going back to 2011, was we started Modernist Cuisine in 2007. In 2007, as hard as it is to remember now, YouTube didn't exist. Blogging it, on WordPress was like the, 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 the hot thing to do. Um, Facebook was still on college campuses. Twitter, I don't even remember if Twitter existed in 2007. Um, I certainly wasn't on it. So by 2012, when Modernist came out and we were doing the publicity, the world had radically changed. And I did, I did note that. It was, hey, it used to be that a book was the best way to get your information out to a, a, to a, a group of customers, to an audience, to a community. That's no longer true. You know, uh, a couple a couple folks with a digital uh, a, a digital camera like a like a like a, a Canon. We were using a Canon 5D Mark II, um, but you know whatever like that kind of technology plus YouTube in a garage. It's possible to build a worldwide audience just like you're doing with your podcast. You can reach anyone. You don't need to get a radio show anymore. And right. so we we kind of wanted to jump on that, and we wanted there was things we knew we could do with video that you just couldn't communicate on the pages of a book. Um, so, you know, Ryan Matthew Smith, who'd been the principal photographer for Modern Cuisine, Grant Crilly, who'd been one of our lead development chefs, myself and Ed Starbird, who uh, was a college buddy of mine, who was sort of our, our MBA finance guy, because we were terrible at that stuff. Um, we, you know, we had some ideas that we should do something here. And it was wandering in the wilderness. Are we going to be a consultancy? We did some, we did some early advertising video work, um, some, some videos for, for Conair Waring. We did some consulting with Johnson and Wales University. But ultimately, we, we realized like, hey, we should just be putting these videos online. And you know, anybody who wants to learn this stuff, we're going we're gonna to create classes. I think if you go back to 2012, we thought like online classes would be based around videos would be our thing. And we launched that. And I think we got like almost 20,000 signups right away. And so we kind of realized like, hey, there's a real company here. We pretty quickly learned that online classes were probably not the future for us. Um, 
and so there was a lot of wandering around of what kind of content should we be making our for our community? What kind of things should we be? What kind of things are interesting? And around 2013, you know, we got serious at looking at hardware because we're like, well, content's great, but at the end of the day, you actually have to go into the kitchen and cook. And and the existing tools aren't as smart as they could be. We we could do a better job. And in particular, a lot of our sous vide content was very, very popular. And as much as Sansera was fine and, and Anova was fine, we realized that these devices were out there. They were re- relatively affordable, and yet people are still really confused how to use them. And, and so people would keep coming for our sous vide content. And we had a vision that what if we made a sous vide device that was really designed to be a kitchen tool, not a laboratory gadget? What if we took advantage of the fact that we all have smartphones now so there's we can provide guidance and, 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 and uh, visual instruction within the app? Would that make it more accessible? Would that be helpful for our community? And that became, that eventually evolved into Juul, and it it went really well. And we, you know, it was fascinating when we launched Juul. Eighty percent of our customers would just type the temperature into the app and start cooking. Uh, within about a year and a half, eighty percent of our customers used our visual doneness feature, where they could just look at an image or a video of the texture and say, yeah, that's what I want. And that really correlated with all of a sudden we weren't selling to the, the early adopters who had it all figured out that had all the temperatures memorized. We were, we were reaching everyday people who just wanted to eat better food and we were doing a great job of helping, uh, helping them. So while I know the decision to have no controls on the device was hugely controversial. Um, I think Reddit wanted to drag me into the street and, and have me shot. Um, <laughs> you know, the thought process behind it was, by moving the controls into the smartphone, by moving it into software, we could learn from our community. We could send updates every week and make the product better for people, easier to use. We were right about some of that. Ultimately, if I did it all over again, I'd probably put controls on the device and, and give people both options. But, um, you know, we had to make some choices and, and uh, you know, we tried to make the one that would would serve our customer base best. And it wasn't entirely unsuccessful. We were, we were, we sold a lot of jewels. Um, and I think we really did show that the, the power of giving people a way to express their human preferences just by looking at photos or images and saying, yeah, that's what I want is a really powerful idea. People don't want to translate their, their desires into engineering parameters like, oh, I would like my steak cooked at 129 and a half for 45 minutes. They go, I just want my steak like this. Give it to right. me because yeah. the real benefit of sous vide is not the technology. It's the food that ends up on the plate and the fact that, you know, it's going to be great. Um, and so, so you know, was a very, very weird company in a lot of ways. It was very experimental about how was social media going to change how a company interacts with its customers? How w- do smartphones change the way you can design tools that work in the kitchen? Um, you know, we had, a, you know, we we were the first to do an Alexa skill because when your hands are covered in goo, voice is a fantastic way to control a, a device. So, you know, I think there was just a lot of curiosity. But at the foundation, Chef Steps was always a company about serving a, a community of cooks that were passionate about cooking and helping them be better, whether it was by creating content or creating tools um, and le- listening to them and learning and and making changes accordingly. And, and I've yet to really come into to to interact with another company that tried to think that much uh, about how do they serve their community of customers. 
I, I can vouch for that. I, I know I've worked with, you know, and I've had other sous vide circulators and usually, you know, they have apps and, you know, they try to kind of help you and teach you, but not, not as much as chef steps did chef steps was more of, I'm going to take this semi confusing, complicated cooking method and kind of bring it down so you can understand it with the pictures of, you know, what your done this level is and all that. And, and a lot of these steps that were in it and, and a lot of the videos that you guys provided wasn't just sous vide, but a lot of it was sous vide, but it, it went into, look, I know you're a novice, so here's how I'm going to do it. A big part of that was, you know, a significant fraction of the senior employees in Chef Steps came out of the hospitality industry. And we always thought of ourselves as a hospitality company where our job is to try to anticipate the needs of our customers and delight them. And, you know, and, and our customers could be pretty diverse. We did a lot of sous vide content, but we also had like high-speed centrifuge content. We also had, you know, uh, pan roasting content. And, you know, that that was a challenge inside the company from an operational standpoint to be that diverse and, and all over the map. But it was all out of the intent of our customers are people who love to cook and our job is to help them choose to cook and be more successful. And that infected everything we did, our customer service. The, the woman who started and, and built up our customer service team uh, came out of Canalis in Seattle. Um, you know, and we really said, we want you to take a customer-centric approach where the default is they're right. And how do we how do we serve them well? Sure, there was some fraud and some people abused it, but it was certainly, you know, we just built, built it into the business model. Um, with the content, it was, you know, what are our, what is our community telling us they want from us? What are we not educating them enough on? And, uh, you know, I think that was an absolute blast to work that way. I think that's in a lot of ways what inspired me to get up and go to work every day. So now it is corporate because now, you know, Chef Steps is part of Breville and, uh, yep. and they're, you know, Grant's moved on to, he's running the Chef Steps, um, uh, I guess they still have the s- subscription service that they're doing yep. and the videos and all that. And uh, he seems to be happy doing that. I mean, he seems happy behind the camera. So he's, uh, he's doing a great job. Um, you know, yeah. I'm, I think in a lot of ways, Breville solved some problems that we, we struggled. Um, you know, there was a tension, which is look, Chef Steps made its money by selling jewel. The content didn't really make money for us under Breville. Grant has a lot more freedom, not only to be able to sell the content directly as their studio pass product, but also Breville makes a lot more kitchen appliances than we do. So it's easier for them to be like, oh, today we're doing stuff with a toaster oven. And if you would like one, we have a very nice one. <laughs> exactly. You know, Chef Steps, <laughs> Chef Steps didn't have that. So I, I'm, uh, I think Grant's doing a fantastic job at Chef Steps. I think uh, the content is, is as good as it's ever been. And, uh, you know, people should check it out. Definitely. So now you've moved on to, um, you said you took some time off in between and you we said like most people like you or go, what's next? What do I want to do next? And you're always thinking, you're always trying to solve problems. It seems like to me anyway. And then, so now you got your company called combustion Inc. And I'm mm-hmm. going to go ahead and share my screen so people can see. There we go. That it, yeah. right? So yes. now it's a combustion.inc. So everybody can go to that and take a look at what you got coming out now. Mm-hmm. So this thing is um, it's kind of familiar to me because I've been using um, a similar product called the meat stick and you got the mm-hmm. meter out there that are wireless um, thermometers that you can, you know, use in on your smoker oven and what's that now mm-hmm. yours is a lot different 
you know, it, it has some similar properties to some of the things that are out there. And I guess Yumly has one now as mm-hmm. well, but yours is a little bit different. So why don't you go ahead and explain to me what this <laughs> product is? Because there's not a lot of information on your website right now, because I'm sure there's going to be th- some things added to it. But um, yeah, so what- right right now we are, we're at the stage of saying, hey, we're building this thing. And, you know, legitly like, you know, there you go. We are, in fact, building it. It is not just a bunch of renderings. Um, <laughs> you know, the the a thermometer is just one of these tools people should have. A kitchen timer is another one of those tools. And you know, I'm not actually are, are arguing for more technology for technology's sake, but I am saying that there's a lot of things that are possible to do now to help people cook. Um, you know, a thermometer is great at telling you where you're at. It's not so great at telling you how long it will take to get where you want to go. Um, a thermometer measures the temperature at the center of the food, which is the last place to see the temperature change. And the real cooking temperature is, well, what's happening at the surface? Because the surface might have a fat cap. It's evaporating. It depends on the humidity. It, it, it isn't just the wet bulb and it isn't just the dry bulb. It's somewhere in between. And you know, so for years, when I barbecue, when I roast something in the oven, I've slipped a, uh, a fine temperature sensor under the surface of my food as well. And I actually control my carubicue based on the surface temperature because it's way more consistent because that's the real cooking temperature. Um, if I'm roasting a chicken, I might start out at 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And as the surface temperature comes up, I will back the temperature off. So you know, this was supposed to be my year off. This was going to be my sabbatical year. I went, <laughs> you know, five years at the Fat Doc, straight into five years at Modernist Cuisine, straight into eight years at, at Chef Steps. It's like, damn, that's a lot. Um, you know, I'm getting older and I was going to travel. I was going to live abroad again. And then COVID happened. And I can't sit still. I have far too many grills and smokers in my, in my yard. And I was tinkering and we're doing some very cool things in barbecue that aren't quite ready yet, but, but hopefully next year. Um, and I wanted a thermometer that simplified this. I have a rat's nest of wires coming out of my smoker. It's a pain in the butt. It's definitely not what you would call user-friendly. Um, you know, I've got it wired up to my laptop, all these things. And the control it gives me is amazing. Uh, the, you know, the ability to uh, you know, get a sous vide level of precision out of my oven, out of my smoker is, is remarkable, but it's a pain. So you know, while we were working on some of these ideas in the outdoor cooking space, we developed a, uh, we're like, we should build a thermometer that can, can work with our, our stuff that will measure the surface temperature. You know, <clears throat> since we were going to make a, a, a thermometer that would measure the surface temperature, because that's the real cooking temperature of the food, you know, he said, look, would be great if we had a bunch more temperature information within the food, if we could profile the the gradient, because we could see how evenly the food is cooking. And also, because we can see how how the heat is propagating through the food, it becomes much easier for us to do things like make a prediction of like, well, when when should we take it out of the oven? And how much carryover cooking will there be? Because if my goal is I want the chicken to nail 145 Fahrenheit, or I, uh, I, I wanted to cook more sous vide-like and be even. Having that information would be fantastic. And nobody makes a thermometer like that. And I have a meter and I have a meat stick and they're pretty big. Um, I don't, you know, for barbecue, it's okay. But for something like a smaller piece of salmon, it's, it's a bit of a big probe to stick in there. So uh, being the kind of guy who would create something as small and compact as Juul, 
I wanted to make a smaller thermometer and I wanted to jam eight temperature sensors in it. And, and, and I also know a lot about internet connectivity with devices now. And Jewel was good, not as good as I would have liked it to have been. And so we took some lessons of saying, look, we should make this 10 times easier. We don't want you to have to pair it. We don't want you to have to connect it. In fact, we don't even want you to have to use a phone if you don't want to. So I decided to make a kitchen timer as a display because look, time and temperature are kind of these obvious things. And doesn't seem like uh, having the idea that, look, if I can just take this thermometer, stick it in the food and have it instantly showing me the temperature on my kitchen timer, frankly, that's easier than pulling my phone out all the time. On the other hand, if I want to see graphs of all my data, if I want to touch on this and see what the temperature is an inch inch into the food, a mobile app is fantastic at that. So, so a lot of this was just taking the experiences of building Jewel some of the ideas I had around how you could bring the precision of sous vide cooking to the oven, to the barbecue, heck, even to the deep fryer, because I think a thermometer is just this basic tool. It sort of spun out of, out of that, but it was a rabbit hole. Like when I started tinkering a year ago, I was just basically trying to make my barbecue better. It was, it was a hack <laughs> job. And, you know, I, I pretty quickly discovered, you know, I'm a mediocre electrical engineer on a really good day. Okay. I'm a terrible electrical engineer. I, I can put the right words and sometimes the right order, but you know, all of a sudden uh, a bunch of like-minded people who are passionate about cooking that, that sort of complement my skill sets. We were all tinkering on this stuff. And as much as building like really cool new smokers, working on new ideas for, for appliances was fun. We all kind of kept gravitating back to this thermometer. Like, wouldn't this be cool? And then we're like, well, we should give it a display. So it became a kitchen timer. But like, let's make it an awesome kitchen timer. And I think, you know, I'm writing the checks for all of this. And so somewhere along the way, I was like, maybe we should just turn this into a product. And we wanted it to be a kind of a different company. We didn't want this to be corporate. Um, I'm not a very good corporate citizen. Um, so, you know, this the, the Combustion Inc. was meant to, meant to be a bit like the Acme Corporation of like, <laughs> we're a little bit irreverent. We're a bunch of inventors. We're somewhat misfits, but the stuff we make is going to be awesome. We're going to have a lot of fun doing it. And we want our community to come along as part of it. And so at this stage, we've announced that this is the first thing that's going to come from us. There, there will be more. And, you know, we like to get feedback. Um, so while we haven't put all of the specs up yet on the website and we haven't announced the price because we're still you know, there's still data that we need before we make those decisions. I like to make them at the last minute so I can have as much data as possible. Something uh, Jeff Bezos is famous for doing. Um, what's been awesome is A, the feedback, like people seem genuinely excited. And then the questions we're getting, can I do this with it? Will it work like this? And the answer to most of them is yes and yes and yes. But some there's been a few where we're like, oh, that's really cool. We should totally do that. Um, or that would be a great thing to do. Or how could we, how could we make that work? Um, and so this is the beginnings of a collaborative process where we will share more information over time. We will learn from our customers and we will build products that serve them. Well, and it, to me, it's, it is you know, the next step because I think, I, I guess back when, you know, uh, instant read thermometers started becoming popular and people started realizing if you control and measure your temperatures, you know, outside or indoor cooking, mm -hmm. that's going to, you know, create a, a superior product. And the better information you have, you know, just like controlling, you know, the, the temperature down to within a half a degree with sous vide, if you can measure and, and, and monitor your internal temperature, your, your cooking, uh, anything that you're cooking, and 
if you can measure the surface temperature, like you said, because that is actually totally different. You know, one of the first things when people start doing smoking and barbecue, they don't, the, the, the uh, evaporative cooling of the stall blows their yeah. mind. And that's yeah. just, that's a basic principle of the way, you know, food cooks. Well, yeah, how food cooks and how, you know, meat, you know, and temperature interacts and how, you know, the proteins, how the moisture within the proteins works and everything else. So once people started getting, understanding that, the more we can measure and, and see, the better cooks we're going to become. Well, so, you know, there, there's there's two comments here. You know, one, time and temperature, like understanding them, measuring them, being able to manipulate them. These are like the cheat codes to better cooking. Like, right. It, 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 like <laughs> For a video like, game. <laughs> right. And so it's like, look, if, if, if I can tell you, like, what are a few things I could tell you that transform you and make you a better cook? Learning to start measuring time and temperature, learning to think about how time and temperature will give you the result you will. Like, it's one of the biggest things I can do to make you a better cook. And, you know, sous vide was sort of like version 1.0 of that idea of I'm going to give you this tool that will make it right. easy. Now we're saying like, look, sous vide's great, but wouldn't it be awesome if you could do this in your smoker, in your oven? And the problem is it's way more complicated. Like the inside of a smoker, what's going on is way more bizarre and complicated. In fact, we're seeing things that are blowing my mind because now that I have eight temperature sensors, when I stick this thing into a brisket and I have the probe sticking, you know, an inch outside of the brisket, you might think that the temperature, if, you're, if your smoker's at 225, 250 Fahrenheit and the surface yeah, it's evaporating and sweating. So maybe the surface is actually about 70 degrees, 70, oh, sorry, I'm thinking Celsius. Maybe the, maybe the surface of your food is about, uh, you know, 165 Fahrenheit. You might think that just beyond the surface, the smoke in the air is actually at 225, not even close. In fact, we can see this really steep gradient where, you know, just in, it falls off. The, you know, it depends on how fast is the smoke swirling, how much food is in there, but there's this gradient in the boundary layer of the smoke and air around the food. And it's very dynamic and it changes as it cooks and it changes as you manipulate the smoker and it totally affects the results you get. But nobody's ever been able to see that before. And at first I thought our data was wrong. And then the more we start looking, we're like, no, the data is right. It's really more nuanced and dynamic than you would expect. And to me, that's really cool. I mean, the analogy is if, if you get into a really hot bathtub, you sit still so that the hot water against your skin is cooled off by your skin. And that way you don't burn. But if you, stir, if you start moving around and you stir it up, you're bringing fresh hot water from further away, closer to your skin, and it, it heats you up. That's exactly what's happening. You know, this is convection cooking, right? But inside a smoker or inside an oven, the fan isn't perfect. The convection isn't perfect. There's places where it kind of stagnates. There's pockets of, of, of almost like smoky fog that's cooler. And all of this gets into the craft and the art of smoking. And so for me, like being able to measure that, being able to learn how my smoker is really cooking my food, like I feel like I've just unlocked a new level where, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be able to do all this cool stuff. And, you know, Maybe nobody else will care about this, but I am incredibly excited by, by the possibility. And it's because nobody's ever made a multi-point thermometer that lets you see the gradient of the food, the gradient of the temperature right around your food. And, you know, eventually there's kind of an obvious path to making it easy for appliances to respond to the information based on the thermometer. Exactly. Yeah. What are the, you were talking about that, how you just don't understand how things work. The first time I did a sous vide chicken and you know, I did a half chicken and then took it out 
and I didn't let it cool. I just, I put it in my hot smoker of mm-hmm. 375. I wanted my skin to get crispy. Well, I measured the temperature, the internal temperature. I cooked it to, you know, 148 degrees mm-hmm. and I put my temperature in, in there and I stuck it in the already hot smoker, expecting the temperature to automatically and the meat start rising, you know, right away. Mm-hmm. Well, it actually just sat there, <laughs> you yeah. know. For a good 15 you know, minutes or so and allowed the skin to get crisp, it started rising after about you know 15 or 16 minutes. But everybody that I would I post this up on Facebook in my group, and they're like, Oh, that's all of a sudden, you know, the temperature's gonna go. You're over gonna cook your chicken. And mm-hmm. no, it just sits there. I watched it. It doesn't go. <laughs> it, 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 but what it allows it to do is that skin to get crispy, but the inside of the chicken still sitting there at 148 degrees for, you know, a a good amount of time before it even starts to rise. Yeah. I mean, the stages of what happens to food inside an oven or a smoker, it's actually sort of well covered in a bunch of like technical industrial processing books that you've got these, like the rise time, the, you know, the drying time, there's a, you know, there, it isn't like your food just responds. And in fact, things that I'm starting to see that are already changing, like how I'm doing stuff in in my ovens at home, the temperature is really low for a very long time. So I crank my oven way high early because even though my oven's 450 Fahrenheit, for like the first 20 minutes, the, the temperature of my surface is just stuck at like ambient and it creeps up to the doneness I want. And all of that is just time being wasted. And it's time that I could be using to dry out the skin to get it crispier. So things that I'm already finding making a change is, well, now I can measure this, what's happening at the surface. So I crank my oven up really high. I watch the temperature. And once the surface gets up to, yeah, I don't want to get it much hotter than that, then I'll back my oven off. But I'm cutting my cooking time by like 20%, but the skin is crisper because it's drying faster. You're, you're moving the moisture out of it at that high temperature step. But it's not ending up overcooked because I can see, oh, now I need to drop my oven temperature. It's, you know, it's, it's fine. Exactly. Um, so I think that kind of stuff is really cool. And it's a small detail, but there's no question, like the skin is better. Yeah, it is that's going to turn out a better product, even though, you know, like I said, the whole point of the things that we try to do is make the end product better. And if we could do that through technology or, or by making new and better things or, or better practices, why not? You know, mm-hmm. I like to learn that kind of stuff. That's, I like to do that. There's some people will just, ah, just give me a recipe and I'll follow it. And I don't want to yep. have to know all that stuff. And that's fine. There's people like always going to be people like that, but people like, you know, me and you, and a lot of people I know, tell me how it works. Show me how I can do it to make it a better product. And, um, it sounds like this is going to be something that nobody else is thinking of. And then and it's going to help out a lot of people once they figure out how, how it works. Yeah. The, the, the very cool, I mean, the nice thing is it's dead simple to use. And that was a real goal, especially coming off to right. like, so, you know, the basic usage is, you know, as soon as you pull it out of the charge case, it's on, there's no button. Uh, it'll run for about 30 hours between charges. And it takes about 10, 15 minutes to recharge fully in the charge case. But as soon as you pull it out, the kitchen timer can see it. And as soon as you stick it into the food, you just take the timer and set, you know, use the buttons to set, this is the temperature I want the core to be when it's done. 145, stick it in the chicken. In about 20% of the cooking time, the timer will pop up and just say, cook and tell. Because it's figured out when should you pull it out of the oven. And then it will switch over to rest four so that it will give you a countdown. And all we're simply saying is, look, if you wanted to get to 145, based on everything we're figuring out about your oven and how your food is cooking, we're going to give you two times. 
we'll, we'll give you a countdown and then set off a, a beep. It's a timer. Take it out of the oven. And then we'll say, you should rest this for seven and a half minutes for the core to finish carrying over. If it's a bigger food, it'll be longer. If it's a smaller food, we've always had rules of thumbs as a chef of, oh, allow for 10 degrees Fahrenheit, allow for 15. Right. But they're, but they're pretty wrong. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at it and I get it wrong a lot, you know, and it's kind of been awesome to have a piece of software that can just, can just tell me that. But if I don't care about any of that, if I've got a bunch of stuff cooking and I just want to use this as the thermometer, you can just stick it into the food and the timer will show you the temperature. Or if you want to click the button and you can surf through the core temperature, the surface, the ambient, we'll show you all that. But there isn't much of a manual needed for this. It works exactly like you'd expect. If you want it to be a thermometer, it's a thermometer. If you want it to be smart, it will be smart. That's it. Um, and if you want to see graphs, if you want to log your data and export it, it does all that too. But, you know, pull out the app for that stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be fantastic. Something that, that's not out there now that can definitely help you be a better cook. So I, I know our time's kind of running out, and but I want to ask you this question because uh, I've had other people ask me to ask you this. Um, okay. We talked about Scott Heimendinger, you know, now he's working for Innova and he was mm -hmm. the one who kind of helped get the Innova precision oven out there, you know, a mm -hmm. home combi, you know, oven. Mm -hmm. Do you see those growing in, in the home market? Uh, do you do you think that's something that maybe you guys will work on or maybe Breville will look work on with Chef Steps to kind of try to, you know, get more uh, countertop space, combi steam ovens, or, or do you see that technology getting better? So, you know, this is, uh, first off, uh, the idea of a home combi oven is awesome. And uh, I don't have an Innova oven yet. Um, I really, really should get Scott or Steven to try to give me a deal. I, I, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't mind one. Um, you know, and I, and one of the things I miss most from the Chef Steps kitchen is the day-to-day -day access to that rationale um, or the, the pair of rationales. Um, the, the combi ovens are fantastic. I don't know what other manufacturers, I don't know anything about Breville's intent. I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not involved in, in that anymore. Um, what I do know is, yes, I think it will happen. I think it's like the early days of sous vide because I think people, sous vide became successful enough and is successful enough that people are beginning to understand the value of having temperature control in a way that traditional appliances don't give you. And you're off the, your standard, I don't care whether you have a $4,000 Miele oven or an $800 GE range, they're boxes that get hot. They can't control the humidity. They don't measure the temperatures that actually matter, which is like what's going on in your food. And, and so, you, you know, we all have these myths and lore about how to get the result you want in the oven. And for some things, it doesn't matter. But, you know, you would have had a lot of people say, well, Who's going to, you know, you did have these companies saying nobody cares about sous vide. Well, sous vide turned out to be pretty successful and is continuing to grow pretty well. I think Innova is coming in saying, look, what people loved about sous vide was the food's awesome. And they know that their oven often disappoints them. We're going to give them an oven that isn't going to disappoint them. Now, it will take some time for them to figure out how to make it accessible enough, how to make the user experience intuitive enough. Um, but I think as they start to deliver on that promise, as people start to discover, wow, I can get sous vide-like results out of my oven. But without the packaging, without the water, that's going to be a big deal. You're going to have a lot of people that will like go, oh, this is so much better. Because now I can combine the searing step and the sous vide step in one appliance and there's no plastic. You're going to have people go, wow, my bread is better because there's humidity in the oven. Like The promise of that is so big that it's just a matter of 
dialing in the user experience. Now, I, I happen to think, and I've talked with Scott about this, um, they're still missing the fact that they don't actually control the temperature of the food. They, 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 can bound, they can bound it on the high end and on the low end, but they don't know what's happening in the center of the food. They don't really know exactly what's happening to the surface under most conditions. And so one of the things I expect you'll see them doing, you certainly see high-end appliances like Miele doing it, is like, there's still a value of sticking a thermometer in your food. I hope to be that thermometer for a lot of people. But I think the ultimate point is people do care about temperature control in the cooking. And a, a modern appliance, whether it's a countertop combi oven, whether it's a wireless thermometer, whether it's a sous vide device, if you give people an intuitive and easy, easy to use way to express the, what they want, their preference, and have the appliance be able to give it to them because it's actually controlling the things that matter, and people get better food from it, they're going to use that appliance all day long. Um, so I think they'll be successful. I think other people will copy them. You know. Uh, I am not racing to go do a countertop oven because my eyes are pretty wide open about what a, a product development cycle like that will cost. <laughs> Probably right. five to eight, five to eight million dollars for 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 productization plus a whole lot more money for marketing. Like that's a great thing for a Nova under Electrolux to do. Not such a great thing for 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 combustion ink to be doing. But you know, I'm certainly hopeful that we can help uh, work with companies like Anova, work with people like Scott by combining our technologies to serve cooks, to make it easier for them to get awesome food. So I'm pretty excited by that future because it's a future where people are still cooking, not pulling out an app, pushing a button and, you know, Uber Eats shows up. Right, exactly. And I think it's important, just like Anova did with sous vide or like Juul did with sous vide or Sancerre, we're in version 1.0. Um, these products will get better. We will, you know, they will push, we will, you know, everyone will be, will be working pretty hard to make these products. And so you kind of have to squint a little, tilt your head and try to imagine what it's going to be like when everything's working exactly right in three, four <laughs> years. Um, you know, we are early adopting, but you know, everyone thought modernist was silly. Everyone thought sous vide were silly. All of those people were wrong. And you've got some people saying, well, why would I want humidity control? You know, there's meetings that you, you know, there's meetings at, at big appliance companies like GE higher going, why do we need humidity control? Right. <laughs> and then when customers go, because the food's better, they'll, they'll get to the program probably a little late, but it will change. It, it, it's taken longer than it should have, in my opinion, but humidity control in an oven or in a smoker or any of these things is just too powerful of a technology that has too much customer benefit to not happen. Yeah. And you see that even in you know just the uh, outdoor cooking area. And one of the things I love to talk about with, especially when I get barbecue people on just 10 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that pellet grills would be as, as popular as they are or mm -hmm. the different kinds of, you know, you go into any, you know, outdoor cooking section in the store now, it's three times bigger than it was just you yep. know five or six years ago with the different types of cookers with the flat tops and the and the pellet grills and and now you got you know master built's got the charcoal uh, gravity fed that's mm -hmm. hooked up the wire. I mean this things just change and 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 they come out and they, they do things better you know so I think this competition and and the drive to make you know cooking easier and better and you know keeping people home cooking instead of you know like you said, yeah. you know, order an Uber Eats. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's great. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, the Uber guys do know where my house is, but you know, there's, some, <laughs> but there's you something. You don't want to do that every day, right? <laughs> no, but more importantly, there's something. Cooking is this fundamental human activity. It made us human. And, you know, I 
a big part of, I think, why I still enjoy inventing in the kitchen space, the outdoor cooking space, the indoor cooking space is you have so many people that, that just view this as another product. They're not thinking about how can they make it easier for people to choose to cook. That's what gets me up is making things that, that basically bring us back into the kitchen, make it easier for us to choose to share a meal that's going to be awesome with our family and our friends. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to, to do a product that's just a marketing exercise of, well, if we make this product, it, it will it will sell to these customers. But, you know, I think that's one of the things that's really going to come out of this year is we've all been home more. We all are cooking at home more. And we're starting to see what types of things can make it easier to cook and what kind of things are, are terrible. So I think it's going to be this really exciting time over the next few years as companies start to come out with products that really do serve uh, cooks at home more. Exactly. Well, I, I really want to thank you for being on. Um, uh, as always, <laughs> I, I like talking about this stuff and I love, um, I love your, uh, the way you think, cause I think the same way I, you're always looking for the next thing. And I really look forward to, uh, checking out this, uh, combustion. What's the name of the product? Is it going to be just going to be called the combustion thermometer? You know, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, Jewel was the code name that I came up with for, uh, for, for the, 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 the product and we spent a but we were like oh maybe we shouldn't we spent a bunch of time even hired a naming company to try to to rename it and jewel just kind of stuck i don't know that i can ever quite come up with a name that good again i certainly haven't been able to come up with with one that i like as much for the thermometer and timer so it may just be combustion ink wireless thermometer and kitchen timer because it is what it is it's it doesn't need to be that fancy it's there's some cool technology but it's just an awesome thermometer god that's Hey, if that's what sticks, that's what sticks, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate you being on. Uh, thanks again. And hopefully I'll have you on when you are uh, announcing the next product and uh, or when this launches. So uh, hopefully this will, by be, the this end will of this, be launching soon. People, people oh, will be cooking with this this year. Awesome. And I'm going to put the uh, links to the website down below. And uh, so people can actually find it and take a look at it. And I appreciate you being on. Thanks again. Anything else you got coming up that you want to talk about? Uh, nothing yet, but, uh, obviously we appreciate, uh, people, people signing up and spreading the word that, that, uh, you know, it's our early community that will make this a success or a failure. So, you know, if this excites you and, and, and people want to support us, the best way you can support us is by signing up and telling your friends. Well, thank you, Darren. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate me. it. Thanks so much, Chris. I will yeah. see you on the next one. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Chris Young one more time for being on. Make sure you check out the links below for Combustion Inc. Also, check out Chef Steps. Check out Modernist Cuisine in the links below. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Make sure you follow the Fire and Water Cooking YouTube channel. Make sure you follow the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast wherever you get podcasts. And make sure you check out the Fire and Water Cooking Cookbook on fireandwatercooking.com. I'll see you on the next one.